Welcome to Pro Tour Talk with Steve Dodge. I'm Steve Dodge. Today is Wednesday, September 26th, and the U.S. women's just wrapped up. Congratulations to Paige Pierce on winning her third or fourth U.S. women's title. Uh, she is still the number one ranked player, according to our power rankings. Although I will say Sarah Hokum had genuinely made it close and had an opportunity to catch her at U.S. Women's and dethrone her as the number one player in our power rankings. Uh, great show by Paige Pierce. It is interesting uh, to read in Paige's uh, post about the tournament that she has been playing very well as of late, except for her putting, according to her. Uh, she switched to a straddle putt at the U.S. Women's, and that is what she says put her over the top. She found her putting groove. Holly Finley and Vanessa Van Dyken were making a serious push, both finishing just a couple shots off the pace. A great showing by Holly and Vanessa. This week on Pro Tour Talk, we're going to talk with Paul Ulibarri about ratings and rankings and how they should be calculated, and how valid they are anyway. honestly think it's almost useless at that level. And then we'll also talk with Nathan Hayden, the guy that designed the database for the power rankings. After we hear from those two, we will go through our Ask Me Anything questions. We will do our podcast of the week. And we've got a special feature that we're going to tack on to the end of the podcast of the week, which is ice cream of the day. I just got a really good ice cream yesterday, and I want to share it with you all. So with that, let's get ready for some Pro Tour Talk. Let's start out with our conversation with Paul Ulibarri about ratings and rankings. All right, everybody, we've got a special treat today. Uh, elder statesman Paul Ulibarri is joining us. Paul, uh, did you turn 30 this year? I did. I turned 30 um, during, actually during the week of Worlds. So uh, we're here with Paul today to discuss the power ranking concept and the ratings concept, which you could also call the handicap concept in, in bowling and golf. They call it the handicap Um and and what what a good methodology is for those and when those should be utilized. Um, the first thing I want to do, though, just for some fun, uh, Paul, I'm going to name 12 people, and I want you to tell me which of those people you think you should be ranked higher than. Are you ready to play? Okay. Okay. Um, Paul McBeth. Um, okay. Uh, should you be ranked you higher than me to him? rank him? Oh, yeah. should I be ranked higher than Paul? Uh, I'm sorry, I misunderstood the question. Absolutely not, no. Oh, okay, I just want to know if you should be ranked higher than because there's 12 people that are currently ranked higher than you in our current ranking system, and I want to see how accurate it is. Um, oh, man, Ricky, no. okay. Ricky Wysocki. No. Uh, Eagle. No. James Conrad. Yes. Chris Dickerson. Yes. Calvin Heimberg. Yes. Can't, yes means you should be ranked higher than them, right? Yep. 
That's what I'm okay, going just making going sure. Yes for uh, ranked higher. No for, for no. Cameron Colglazier. Yes. Simon Lazat. No. Nathan Sexton. No. Greg Marsby. No. I was inter- I thought you were going to say yes on that. I thought you were going to say you should be ranked higher than the world champ. Uh, Seppo Paiu? Oh, toss-up. I think we're pretty close. And Matt Orr. Either way, I think. Yes. Okay. So it seems like there were four or five players. Uh, Macbeth, Wysocki, McMahon, Lazat, Sexton, and Barsby. You said you should be... that. You could see being ranked higher than you. Uh, that puts you in a tie for seventh with Seppo Paiu. Um, so that is the top 12 or 13. 14th, just, you know, right below you is Kevin Jones. Now you guys are basically in a tie. Um, but uh, And then Kale Laviska rounds out the top 15. Okay. And that is our current power ranking system. Uh, I would love to hear you wax poetic on ranking. Rankings versus ratings, and uh, and what we should look for in both systems. Sure, I could. Yeah, I could start real quick. Um, I've never been a fan of ratings for the for the top echelon of disc golf, uh, which means like I'm guessing top, just the top pro, you know, touring players. I don't think it's a good indication of where they lie as far as ranking each other or something like that, and I honestly think it's almost useless at that level. Um, I can't think of one reason a rating should be next to somebody's name once you get to a certain level, uh, especially when you're competing for major titles, big titles, things like that. A rating really means nothing. Let's say, uh, let's use traditional golf as an example because it's, you know, it's our sister sport and people kind of understand that um, to be similar. So I think right now Justin Rose might be the number one ranked player in the world in traditional golf. Now, as you listen to, let's say, announcers call a major championship with Justin Rose, they use his number one world ranking to describe him as the player, right? There has never been there has never been one example ever, and I watch a lot of traditional golf, of somebody saying, you know, Justin Rose, he's pretty good, you know, right now with handicaps, you know, sitting right at an eight. <laughs> you know, at a plus like eight. People he's probably at a plus eight. Yeah. Yeah, at a plus eight, like what? A, yeah, exactly. At a plus eight, or you know, a plus three, or whatever he averages on the tour, because being the number one ranked player in the world says everything you need to know about that player. You know that that exactly explains it to me the way that I look at it. Um, when when you once I think Barzu was, was rated ten twenty when he won the world championships. There were some people that were surprised he won the world championships, but really, with all the top players, none of us were surprised. He won. You know, he's good enough to take down a title like that, and he did it. So the surprise 
was not that he was low rating. That wasn't wasn't on anybody's mind ever until I think Oldie World might have come up with an article about him being pretty low rated to win the world championship. That doesn't matter. You know, everybody knows that Greg Barsby is good enough to win major championships. He always has been. He's put himself in that situation. I think right now the new PDJ world rankings came out and he's ranked fourth. And nobody will argue that because he's always there at the major championships. So for ratings, yeah, I think they're pretty much pretty much useless at the top level. The other side of it that I think of is uh, someone like Garrett Gerthy. When he came on tour this year, he, he really hadn't played many big events and therefore had a relatively low rating to start the season. And I, in my opinion, his rating is probably still not even caught up yet. Um, and so his his rating is, you know, he, he I think he was rated like 10, 1007. And he was getting in the top five, top ten of most of the Pro Tour events the first half of the season. And sure. uh, the, the rating was was in no way indicative of his skill level. And it didn't matter one bit. What mattered was he was top five, top ten at all these Pro Tour events. So, so to hammer that point home a little bit more. Yeah, exactly. That's a great point. And, uh, you know, as far as ratings, I, I do think there is – there's use for them for sure. I think it, it should be more for the amateur level. I think it could almost be like a Q school to where once they reach a certain rating, they're able to play events, and I believe that's the way it works right now. Um, and I think that's very useful uh, for them to be able to compare their handicaps at that level, you know. Um, but once you get to a certain level, it there's i mean what 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 can like how is let's use Macbeth as an example ten fifty is an insane is an an insane mark to get to, and I don't think he's there anymore, but he was there for a good while, him and Ricky, I think both made it, and uh let's say he wants to take that to a big um for a big endorsement deal, like you go up to. <laughs> it's just funny to me to think about, yeah. Yes, it actually makes me kind of giggly to think about like him trying to take that to a Nike or something and be like, "Yeah, so you know, I'm ranked number one in the world, but I'm 1050 rated. Nobody's ever been 1050 rated in disc golf. It's a crazy accomplishment." And they'd be like, "Oh, that's great. Could you explain what that means? Well, it means that I, you know, I average." A really good score. <laughs> Every time I, I think what I it play. means is I averaged eight strokes <laughs> under par on a par on a fifty-eight SSA. Yeah, yeah. I really play really good, and they're like, <laughs> okay, <laughs> like that's great. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it would be just a I funny, do. a funny thing to explain to somebody like that. So. Especially when you I can just have love a number one or number two ranked player in the world. Unfortunately, and this is unfortunate, I feel like this is unfortunate that we're using them for our ranking system. I think that is completely, completely unfair to some players. Um, 
Well, that is changing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, a lot of people will look at different ranking systems, but I think people still probably look at the PDGA ranking system the most, and they use it pretty heavily in theirs. The new power ranking system, well, and actually the the old one as well, that for the for the Pro Tour has has never used ratings as part of the ranking. Okay, yeah, um, that's right. We, but it was uh, a qualifier, right? You had to be a thousand rated. Exactly what I was about to say. I shouldn't actually say that. I should say it was the first cut. So you had to be a thousand rated to be considered. And then we did a, a straight one loss percentage over the course of the season against one thousand rated players. And so okay. uh what we've done now is we've tweaked it and we actually have uh have Nathan Hayden waiting in the wings to explain that even more. But we've tweaked it so instead of being uh, comparing to a thousand rated players, you're comparing to the top twenty five ranked players in the world. So it's your one loss record against the best players in the world. And so just okay. so you know, your one loss percentage is forty nine point nine percent. You if you're playing the top twenty five guys in the world, you are fifty fifty in a head to head battle. Okay. There you have it. So here's where I would like here's where I would like to see rankings go. May I go? Please. Please, I'm all ears. Okay, so rankings can be kind of touchy, especially if you do them in the way that you're explaining. Because now you're playing at all the events you're playing or are you guys are you guys using certain tiers to qualify as uh, somebody playing against the top twenty five or is it every tournament? No, you have to. It has to be a quality event, and we define a quality event, interestingly enough, as an event that has ten or more one thousand rated players. And in that way, okay. we view the event as quality. And so then, it, at those events, you do you, you would earn wins and losses. Okay. So what I would like to see is events being named ranking events, world ranking events, like a world ranking tournament to where maybe all the pro tours, those would be all, world, they're designated as world ranking events, okay? Now, other tournaments, if you accumulate a bunch of wins or something like that, that definitely can play into it, but um, there has to be certain events that are dictate that dictate your world ranking. Um, big reason for that is pressure. There's a lot of pressure at major events, right? National tours, pro tours, of course. world ranking. That's where the best put. There's a lot of people in sports that might get beat week in and week out, but as soon as that pressure mounts, those players show up, right? And that's how you kind of, I don't know, it's a—it's like in, in traditional golf. There can be all of these um, people winning. I think there was like something like 12 new winners on the PGA Tour, okay? But as soon as they name it a major, it's the same <laughs> 10 guys. Right. Right? It's always the same guys. Isn't that funny? If you look at all the, even the PGA majors, the majors that we have, how many do we have this year? We had three. 
I think that's right. Three majors. You're going to find the same group of guys in the top ten. And it's always been like that. That's the way that it works because the high pressure is a big determining factor at those tournaments. A lot of people can't perform. And then people who might might struggle, you know, for some of the year, as soon as it's a major championship, for some reason you can always expect that player there because it's just right. That's just the way that it is. And so in, in traditional golf, that's a lot of the world ranking is based on world tour events and then the majors. And then, of course, if you get a couple wins during the season, that can go to your ranking and benefit you. But if you play a world tour event and you have a bad finish, it could definitely weigh heavily on your world ranking. You can always choose to not play an event, right? That's one thing in disc golf that I that the sport really hasn't gone there yet are people not playing because of injury, right? A lot of players play through all their injuries, and I'm one of them right. for sure. In traditional golf, players skip tournaments all the time because of this reason. Because why show up to a tournament not 100%? You know, why risk all of that? Your health, a bad finish, all those things. Yeah, I know a lot of a lot of players play. I, I played with, a uh, you know, a slight tear of my MCL for like five tournaments this year. Right. And, and that would never happen, you know. Exactly. No, of course not. In a different, I wouldn't be allowed to do that. Um, so I personally will go so, ahead and say I like the idea of naming the events prior to the season. Um, yeah, I think that gives those events a little extra uh, importance, and people know exactly what they're getting. Um, right now, if you are going to uh, an A tier or a B tier. And there's 9,000 rated players, it's not included. But if one guy just signs up at the end, it, all of a sudden it is included. And all of a sudden it's, it's viewed as an important tournament. Um, and that is yeah. an arbitrary number and an arbitrary way of picking events. And I personally like the well, idea of just saying, here's our, here's our 28 events throughout the season. Yeah, and then you have to play a certain amount to even be world ranked, see? Cor- correct. So then if you if you want to be a world-ranked, high-profile pro- player, you have to play two of these events to be ranked or three of these events to be ranked. You know, and then um, I'm not exactly sure how other sports do it, but if you have a bad finish, it's not just going to shoot you out of the top three. You know, like... Uh, um, I think we I say like for every system. eight events, you get one drop. Okay, yeah, that's nice. Yeah, that's nice. Um, I uh, think I think when golf is determining, it's either golf or bowling, is determining a handicap, somebody told me they just use the your best half, the top half of your games. Because what you're actually trying to figure out is what can you shoot, not what do you shoot. Yeah, a lot of and, people uh, do that with, uh, with just your handicap in golf. 
So, and maybe maybe rankings should rankings be the same way? It's what what can you shoot, or is it what do you shoot? No, no, it's what do you shoot for sure, for exactly. sure. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that there should be. I actually I actually like what you guys are doing with the with the new system. I just think that there could be designated events would be a better way to do it, and then. I'm, there need to be weighted events too, to where you are the the weight of a certain world tour event is higher uh, weighted than let's say another A tour that you're playing. If you win that, sure you get a couple points to your world ranking. But if you win a world tour event, and so you would get more ranking points for that. And then of course the majors, those are heavily weighted on your world ranking, which all the majors should 100% be heavily weighted on your rank. It shouldn't be everything. If you have a bad finish, you mess a cut at a major in golf, like if Justin Rose would do it, he would he would definitely wouldn't be able to hold it, probably maintain his number one world ranking, but he wouldn't drop past probably three. So uh, I will say that we do rank events differently. However, we rank events based on the number of top 25 players that attend. So, for example, the Australian Open was a major, I believe, uh, a couple years ago, but it was not a very well-attended major. So for the power rankings, that would not have had as much importance as, um, for example, uh, Glassblown Open. These glass blown open, a much higher percentage of the top 25 players attended. So we do we do rank the events based. Well, it's it's not based on them being a major. It's based on the number of top ranked players that show up. Gotcha. And uh, I wish that I had talked with Nathan after I talked with you. I know he's coming up next on the podcast, but. I will the next time I talk with him I will ask him about the idea of let's name the events that will be included in the rankings. I think he will be all for that. Um I also I love the clarity that it gives and the importance that it gives to certain events. Sure. Uh thank you Paul Ulibarri. Uh do you have any uh, any last words before we uh send you off? No. No, thanks for having me man. I love uh discussing these topics with you and hope everybody enjoys it. And I'm glad that we're, you know, going on the right track to fix some of these problems that we have. Okay. And so uh, what I heard, I think what I heard you say is you want to develop a handicap system for the touring pros. So when you play against someone who's ranked higher, you get, you get strokes each round. Is that where we ended up? I would love that. <laughs> I would love, I would love my, <laughs> now that you're getting older, handicap hall would give me or whatever it would be. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Paul. Have a great night. Yeah. Bye, guys. I absolutely love the way that Paul thinks about this game and presents himself and presents his ideas. Let's shift just a little bit to Nathan Hayden and have a discussion with him about the power rankings for the Pro Tour, how they're calculated, and the fact that they're on, on an online database now.
Hello there, everyone. We are now joined by Nathan Hayden. Uh, Nathan Hayden, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Steve? I'm doing very well. And the reason that we have you on the call is because today's topic is the power rankings. And uh, as you're very well aware, my Google Sheet that I used to calculate the power rankings started to bog down. And uh, I wasn't able to successfully degrade older tournaments. And so things started to get really wonky, and uh, and you stepped in and, and helped make things more real. Can you can you give the listeners a quick a quick five thousand foot view of of what you have been working on over the past month? Yeah, I'll try to summarize and and not bore people because it, it gets a little bit technical. But uh, I actually am a professional software engineer with a lot of database experience. So uh, basically, I stepped in and. Uh, what we did is we wanted to try to, instead of, all we have right now is we just have the rating system to kind of get a sense of, you know, relative strength of players and everything. But ratings are more kind of like a long history of how people have performed over time. And and what we're trying to do is capture um, how well people are performing right now this season kind of against the rest of the top players you know, that are that are playing disc golf right now in both the MPO field and in the FPO field. Um, and those those are the kind of things we are trying to identify. So there's a couple different So when I go – oh, I, I was yeah, going to just clarify that. When I go to uh, the NFL power rankings or Major League Baseball power rankings or basketball power rankings, um, those are telling me at that one particular moment in time who – they think is the hot team, the best team in the game. Um, right. I'm under I'm under the impression that are those algorithms or are those uh, are those humans making that determination? So, yeah, it's, it's kind of a mixed bag. I mean, if you go to the ESPN, I mean, if you go to the, for example, NBA, I then Mark Stein did this for a long time, where he would sit there and come up with the the ranking. I think Jason Stark did it for a lot of times for baseball. You know, the NFL guys. It, it tends to be either a guy or a committee of guys sitting around and, you know, talking about, well, how did they do this last week? And, you know, what's the eye test and all that kind of stuff. And that's how they come out with their power ranking. <laughs> now, they do have they do have some uh, more automated things. So, with the NBA, you have uh, John Hollinger, who I believe still works for the Memphis Grizzlies. He got hired away from ESPN. But John Hollinger came up with some Hollinger stats. And he would look at things like strength of schedule and what their record record was and, uh, you know, uh, be able to predict, you know, how likely these teams were going to both make the playoffs and then, you know, win in the playoffs. You know, uh, college basketball uses the RPI, for example. Go ahead. And they're using statistical analysis as opposed to, uh, wow, I, I think that LeBron's really good. Right. And, and this is, it's sort of like a, there's a lot of analytics now. I mean, Moneyball came out several years ago, and people are applying sabermetrics to a lot of things. So, I mean, in college football, you have the BCS to get to standings, which is very controversial, you know. But the difference here is that when you're just talking about power rankings, we're just talking about who we think the best players are, you know, in a team sport, the best team, um, unless you're the BCS or, I guess, the RPI in uh, college basketball. You're really not applying this to standing. This is just this is who we think is the best right now. 
people that want to dig into the data, you kind of get a, a little bit more information. Feel like I don't know, maybe your fantasy team's going to do a little better if you understand some of this stuff going on. <laughs> um, so you had in, in many of our conversations, you had mentioned the BCS and the fact that the BCS is so confusing and people don't don't understand it. Um, just to clarify for everybody, real quick, you mentioned standings. So on the Pro Tour, we have tour points, and that is that is one thing. And we go throughout the season, and we just crowned our tour points champion. Paul McBeth won the tour points this year. Uh, over the nine events, you take you throw out the worst two that you have, and then the best seven events. How many points did you get? And and he got the most points. Uh, that is different, although. Actually, on top of the power rankings as well, but that is different than the power rankings. And could you, just because the BCS is confusing and therefore people don't necessarily trust it, I'd like you to walk through, uh, you did an analysis of what I was doing and then you added on to it, in my opinion, and made it even an even more robust system. Can you explain to us uh, how exactly we determine the power rankings? So sure. So um, I'm going to gloss over, try to make it as brief as possible. But the general idea is we want to find out how well players are performing against other players in in really the whole field, but specifically in the tournaments that they participate in. And so what we want to try to do, uh, and it's actually a multi-path system where we we go through all of the rankings and and generate a list of benchmark players. And what I mean by that is I pick 25 players from the the men's open field and say these players have proven uh, consistently to be among the best, and it's an automatically generated list of 25. It's not my eye test. And then I'm going to take all of the other players in the field and then compare them against how those 25 players are performing. And so... Uh, if you let's let's go use an example at the uh, at the GBO this year, okay? Um, okay. Eagle McMahon, I think, won that one, and there were I don't know how many different people participated, but you know a number of players participated. Probably in excess of fifty, you know, thousand rated players participated in that tournament. But chances are that maybe only 20 players participated uh, that were part of our, you know, list of the top 25 players. And so he would get credit for being just those 20 players. Um, so it doesn't matter just necessarily to, just how to, many. I wanna, Go ahead. Yeah. I want to synopsize real quick. Uh, what you're doing is you're getting a one-loss record versus high-quality players. What, what I used to do, I did a, a one-loss record versus 1,000-rated players. And because you put this in a database, we're able to do more. We're able to do more. I can just stop that sentence. And uh, and one of the things that we came up with and uh, you implemented was the idea of uh, let's just see how they do against the top top players. Because if you are a uh, if you're a, a B tier warrior and you're playing relatively high end B tiers that have ten or so thousand rated players but they don't have the top players, you could actually have a very high win percentage against 1,000-rated players and, and never even really be on tour. So right. what you did was you said, let's take 
just win-loss record against the top 25 players. And now it's just a question of how we figure out who those 25 players are that you get your one-loss record against. Exactly. So in this case, uh, you're you're well rewarded if you're going to beat, you know, somebody like Paul McBeth, you know, or Simon Lazat in a tournament head to head. Whereas if you beat the you know, local tournament pro who happens to be in Oregon and you're playing Beaver State, then maybe you don't get any credit for that win. And so what it does is allow us to identify who are the truly consistent players who perform well across the country, across the world, and uh, then we we set those players up as a benchmark, and then we can we can make another pass and say, okay, now how does everybody do against that? We It's cool. We actually saw some surprises. At least I felt like I saw some surprises when I started seeing people who maybe aren't household names but are kind of grinding away and and pulling off some you know impressive wins against the field. And uh, so, I mean, that's the fun part about the rankings, which is the data, you know, drives what you get to see. Absolutely. Uh, uh, and I believe we do two iterations of figuring out who the top 25 players are that we're going to compare the one-loss records against. And so when you look at the uh, the final ranking is the top 50. Uh, in general, uh, those top 25 players are going to be the people who you're getting a one-loss record against. So uh, if you uh, if you have Ricky Wysocki's number and you are 10-0 and 0 against him, uh, you are probably going to be doing very well in the power rankings because he's one of those top 25 players. That is That is correct. If you are consistently beating Ricky Waisaki, I hope I know your name already. <laughs> <laughs> That's the truth. Um, yeah. So, Nathan, uh, just just to give people a sense of of the scope of the undertaking that you you took on, uh, thanks to your wonderful brother, uh, the. Uh, and I, that's a little bit of a, a poke and a jab at Chase because I think he enlisted you for this, and, and neither you nor I knew exactly what we were getting ourselves into. I remember our very first conversation uh, right before the MVP Open, and uh, yep. it was it was a pretty long and in-depth conversation, and then you just went and looked at a spreadsheet and figured figured out a lot of things. But let people know approximately, the, I mean, how many hours have you put into developing this so far? I'm afraid my wife is going to listen to this podcast and hear the answer to that question. I, I would right, so guess... Cut, cut it in probably, half. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, honestly, I've probably put about 40 hours of work into it, give or take. I don't I don't know exactly because it's, I've been doing it in the cracks of my spare time. But... Um, that is a very yeah, good, it, solid, solid week, um, and I don't know if that includes all the time that it took you to, to get the uh, the online aspect, because you developed this on your locally first, and then you that, redeveloped true. it online. So yeah, I, uh, I, I developed a database, and then I put a front end on it, so it's uh, it's got a full web interface. And I'm going to go ahead and ask a question. I'm supposed to know the question answers to all the questions I ask so that uh, so I don't look dumb on the back end. But I'm going to go ahead and ask this question. I'm not sure of this, but one of the reasons I believe we put it on an online database uh, is so that we can develop an API. And so people can, if you have a website, you know, if you have a Drew Gibson fan page, 
we could have an API where you actually plug in and the power ranking, Drew, Drew Gibson's power ranking would pop up there and it would change as his ranking changes week to week. Is that is that true? Is that something we might could have done in the next four or five months? It is. That is definitely within the realm of possibility. Um, that is that is for me. That's exciting. I, I love the idea of being able to share these rankings across a lot of different places. Yeah, I mean, from my standpoint, by far the hardest part is just really getting the raw data into there and building up the database, and then uh, coming up with the calculations and you know how we want to deliver the data to other people. That's that's the easy and fun part. And so um, the, the other big side of this is. We want to know who's number one right now, which is different than tour points, which is who's number one over the course of the season. Um, the memorial happened at the beginning of the season, and uh, Pro Worlds just happened. How do we view those uh, in the rankings? Are they treated the same? So that is a very good question. <laughs> so um, the way that we have decided to do this is that we actually don't want to treat all of the results 100%. Well, we do want to treat them all equally, but we want to skew the results to um, more favor the more recent results. So Eagle McMahon is my favorite example to use for a lot of these different things that I keep talking about. If you remember, Eagle came out really hot at the beginning of the season. We're hearing all this, you know, it's the year of the shield. And uh, he was winning tournaments or getting second in tournaments. And, and everybody was like, wow, this is Eagle's year. And it really felt like, you know, he was going to come out and, you know, win a world championship. Um, since, you know, the first couple months of the season, he's cooled off a little bit, okay? And which is not to say that he's not doing well. He's still placing highly in tournaments. He's still cashing. You know, he's he's doing great. He's He's doing all right. But... Uh, we have not seen the same eagle uh, that we saw at the beginning of the season. Okay, so our rankings as, as they exist today in our current form will take, it'll give you full credit for the most recent kind of rankings, I mean, for the most recent tournament results, and then we're going to slowly scale that back uh, as you go further back in time. So if, for example, um, we did not apply that penalty to Eagle for his earlier win. I believe he would currently be the number one ranked player for this season. However, because we're imposing yeah, a penalty, oh, yeah, because we're imposing a penalty on some of his earlier wins because they were in the distant future, and, and more recently, some other players have been stepping up. Uh, he's actually fallen a couple spots in the ranking and is no longer the number one ranked player which to me I think is an ideal uh, attribute of a power ranking system because it's giving you a sense of who's doing well right now. Uh, the reverse is true for Mr. Greg Barsby, who, you know, is always a pretty consistent, you know, one of the, you know, probably tier two players. He's not up there on the upper podium usually. Yeah. However suddenly has caught fire, and now he's been climbing the rankings and find himself in the top ten of the rankings right now because of his recent performance. You know, we all saw him win the World Championships, which racked him up a lot of wins against a lot of great players. 
Uh, on the, on so, the female side, you get the same thing with Paige Bierkus. Exactly where I was headed. Because um, we, we use men as the examples here. But now with the women, uh, we are, we're using the top 25, your one loss record versus the top 25. I assume on the women's side, we use a smaller number there. We do. Um, and that's actually a really interesting point that, uh, dealing with the, uh, the FPO field. I had originally planned on using, instead of the top 25 as a benchmark, using the top 10. And here's what astounded me when I actually ran the numbers. Of the entire FPO field, only, uh, oh, and I should say this, I had intended on having a top 20 for the FPO field. Yeah. Only 18 players scored a single win against the top 10 for the women in FPO. And so I had uh, to actually expand I had to expand my list of benchmark players just so that we could get to a top 20. That That's is how, uh, that is where re- reality meets theory. Yes. <laughs> so it, I to me it was astounding but it, it really shows you there's two ways to look at it. We either have a set of very dominant female players completely dominating the top top Maybe the truth is a little bit, we need to expand that field of uh, female players so we can start, you know, drawing more touring pros into the mix. A hundred percent agree on that. And I'm I'm really happy we've actually partnered with the PDGA this year to uh, bring extra uh, eyeballs and focus on the women's side. And uh, it, from, from what I've heard, I don't know the final numbers for the year yet, uh, but... Uh, oh, actually, I do know that the number of women participating in Pro Tour events went up something on the order of 50 to 60%. So wow. it's definitely yeah, it's working on that level. Um, and then uh, and then the PDGA membership numbers I have not, not quite heard yet. But I look forward to hearing that and seeing if we've had success on that front also. But, uh, yeah, we definitely want to see more touring women. And uh, the Pro Tour is actually doing many of the things we did this year, and we're actually increasing some of the things. So we're actually adding some new things to help bolster the women's field. But that's a that's a topic for a different day. There is another thought, though. How does someone qualify for the rankings? Like, if I just play one event, do I automatically get in the rankings? How does someone qualify just to even be considered to be in the rankings? Yeah, so... I mean, like we were saying earlier, we're really trying to avoid having somebody creep up into the rankings. Take, for example, you've got a a local tournament. You've got two pros passing through. They all play in the tournament, and this local guy does really, really well in this tournament because it's his home course. And so maybe he racks up a bunch of wins again. You know, he beats uh, Nicola Castro and, uh, I don't know, some other people that are probably on the list. In theory, he would have a really high, you know, winning percentage in our rankings, and so we might have somebody we've never heard of pop up as number three on the list. So we really want to make sure that people are participating in these touring events against other top players consistently and consistently doing well. And so uh, we are going to reward players for that participation. So one of the things that's interesting is uh, a name that's really jumped on the scene over the last couple months. We keep seeing them on uh you know on these final cards and stuff is Calvin Heimberg, who's been playing very, very well. Um and but he actually only barely made the rankings 
because of his participation. He's only played in a few events that were really kind of qualifying events. And um, at, actually, at one version of my thing, I was limiting enough people in that final list that he was he did not make the final cut, even though if he had been in the final cut, he would have been the number five player in the ranking. So uh, he's an example of a player that's just barely on the bubble of even appearing on the rankings, but when he's on the rankings, he ranks very highly because he always plays well. Um, so, Nathan, uh, anything else that you'd like to... So I wanted to say, uh, first of all, thank you, but it's interesting to me because we degrade the events over time, and I think it's uh, 2.5% each week that we degrade the value of the events. And uh, the funny thing to me is there's two ways to do this. One is to ask a whole bunch of people who's the best player in the world, and then you aggregate all of that feedback, and you have a, a pretty good consensus. Uh, the other way is to do an objective measure like we're doing, where you just go head-to-head who wins the most often. The funny thing about it to me is when we do that, uh, the first time we ran the results, we looked at it and we said, wait, this doesn't look right. And so we tweaked it, and we said, okay, Okay, we need to degrade slower, or we need to degrade faster, or we need to compare against the top 25 instead of 40. And just like you said with the women, we need to do the top 15 instead of 10. So while it is an objective measure, the uh, the variables that we put on it are subjective. And so we're defining what it is to be the top-ranked player, and we're we're simply humans. So... Over time, uh, we might find reasons to tweak those numbers because there's more disc golf tournaments, so they should degrade slower or faster, or there's more women, so we need to compare against the top 10 or the top 15 instead of the top 15. Um, I, did, I like the fact that it's it's an objective system, but there's subjectivity underneath it in the variables. Yeah, I think that that's definitely true. Uh, some of that, I think, will uh, normalize as, as the sport continues to grow and as the, uh, you know, players continue to improve, uh, things tend to normalize. Uh, there were several interesting things I noticed as I was running the numbers, and uh, I should also mention that I've, I've got this cooking in the background. I've been tinkering with the idea of going back and looking at historical results. Um, I don't want to get into a lot of that because a lot of it isn't fully baked, but I haven't, I intend to go all the way back to 1992, which is where, uh, the PGA first started publishing tournament results on its website. And so we can start doing crazy things like who had the best disc golf season of all time, you know, but, uh, that's coming in the future. But okay, what I wanted to say, cause I, I've been tinkering with looking a little bit back into the history of results. And if you go back down to just even last year, 2017, 2016, 2015, uh, I was seeing more of a top-heavy um, dominance, uh, even in the MPO field, like we were seeing in the in the FPO field, where, you know, really Ricky Wysocki and Paul McBeth and, you know, maybe a couple of other guys were really dominant and, and it started to thin out a little bit as you went further down. I remember just, uh, I believe it was a couple weeks ago, uh, either Nate Sexton or, or uh, Jeremy Coleman on one of the, one of the broadcasts 
was talking about how just everybody is getting so much better. The field is getting so much better. And that's what they were feeling, you know, as they were playing. And I think the data is actually reflecting that. A hundred percent. And it's, I'm so glad that you pointed out that just a handful of years ago, uh, the men had that top-heavy dominance that we're seeing on the women's side now, which means that I would say in a handful of years, we will have pushed beyond this point if we continue to focus on the growth over there. Yep. Um, Nathan, thank you very much for your efforts. Thank you for uh, taking taking up some of your time to additionally explain the power rankings. Uh, I'm very excited about having a lot of extra. Uh, the power rankings now are much more robust, and I think that's fantastic. And my Google sheet broke down when I tried to uh, degrade the value of the events over time, and uh, I think it's probably for the best that that, uh, that becomes a relic of history. Uh, I hope you have a fantastic night, and, uh, and thank you for taking a little bit of time with us here on Pro Tour Talk. All right. Thank you, Steve. Nathan could not understate the amount of time he put into this any more than he already has. Well, he could, I guess. No, he already stated it, so he can't understate it more than that. But Nathan has done an incredible job putting this together. Our power rankings, uh, we're going to be republishing them, I suspect, nonstop, starting after USDGC or after Hall of Fame, right before the Tour Championship. So stay tuned for that. The power rankings will exist. And based on what he's working on, we might go ahead and publish power rankings back 20 or 20 or even more years. So we can look at 1998 and say, who was the best player that season? And what was the best, the most dominant season ever? Uh, I think we should take a poll on that before we do it. Like, who was better, uh, 1992 Ken Climo or 2015 Paul McBeth? That would be a fun battle. Instead of doing a podcast of the week, what I'm actually going to do today is we're going to close this out with our album of the week. I've been listening to The Feelies, The Good Earth, for probably a little over a month. Anytime I have any issues and I'm confused in life, I just put on the feelies, and they help me figure things out. I am not kidding you. So, the feelies, the good earth, give it a listen. I can't recommend it high enough. And our ice cream of the week, to finish this whole thing off, I went down to Aldi. They've got their own brand of ice cream, and this ice cream was called Make Fudge, Not War. I love it. Um, someone commented that it seemed a little too chocolatey that seems impossible but anyway there we have it our ice cream of the week our podcast of the week thank you all for listening this has been pro tour talk have a great night